Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I'm so glad to be here with all of you this morning. I want to say welcome, welcome to our West Campus gals. We have an amazing group of gals that study the Word of God with us every single week at the West Campus, and it is a joy to have them as part of this study. So thank you all for being here with us. Now, for those of you that are uh, my age in the audience, uh, you know what begins to fill your mailbox and your email after you turn 50-something. It's all those things from AARP, isn't it? I mean, every day I get a stack of stuff from AARP. And then after that, you begin to get, after the AARP, uh, overwhelms you, you begin to get all these uh, flyers and information things about financial seminars, prepare for the future. In fact, when I got home last night, um, there was one laying on the counter and it was for, a, I think, a Del Frisco's dinner and we could hear from a financial planner about how to be prepared for the future. But my favorite one was one I received a couple of months ago, and it was from a financial institution that we've done some uh, investing with, and they have an app they have created for your phone, and what they wanted you to do was to take a selfie and then upload it to the app, and they were going to age your photo so you would know what you were going to look like when you retired, and uh, so that that, I guess, was going to motivate motivate you, that you were going to be old and wrinkled and you were going to be motivated to be prepared for retirement. So I just couldn't resist. I had to, uh, I had to do it. So I took my selfie and I uploaded it. And then I opened my picture of what I was going to look like. And I was younger. I was younger. It was so I don't know whether they were telling me that I get a facelift when I retire. Maybe, maybe I'm gonna, or maybe I'm gonna look so much better, you know, when I retire. Or maybe they were saying I missed the boat and I should have retired ten years ago, and now I'm so old I don't even need to worry about it. <laughs> so. Um, but I'm still getting all these uh, emails. But as annoying as all these emails and junk mail is from AARP and the financial planners, you know, being prepared for the future is really not a bad idea, is it? Paul, who is a great example of how to live that committed, passionate life for Christ, after three missionary journeys, knows that his future holds another journey. He, it holds a journey to Jerusalem. He's not running from it. He knows he will probably go on to Rome after that. He also knows that it holds some hard times ahead. And he's not running from that either. Instead, it appears that Paul is fully prepared for the future that he knows lies ahead of him. Look at your verse sheet. Acts 19.21 on your verse sheet says... Now, the, uh, now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must see Rome. He knows he's going to Rome next. And Acts 20 says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await from me, await me. Paul does know what lies ahead in his future. The Holy Spirit has told him repeatedly. And what intrigues me as I study Paul is how prepared he seems for all, all of this future that involves hardship. Today's two chapters in Acts that we've looked at in your homework and we're going to talk more about today give us, I think, a selfie of Paul. And we're not talking about how old Paul is, but what we're going to see in his selfies are how prepared he is for that uncertain future and what it is that has helped him be prepared. Uh, chapter 21 opens. Um, we're going to see that Paul's life continues to be a travelogue. He's finishing his third missionary journey that we talked about last week with Lynn. He's had a tearful goodbye with those Ephesian elders out there on the beach. He knows he's never going to see the Ephesian elders again in person. And he sets sail across the Mediterranean. And the opening verses of chapter 21 says they set sail, they pass south of um, the island of Cyprus, if you're looking at your journey, and they land on the coast of what is Phoenicia at a city called Tyre. Now, sea journey in Paul's day depended on them being able to find a cargo ship that they could book a passage on. There, wasn't, there weren't passenger ships, so they had to find a cargo ship for themselves. And that's really what has happened here. They've found a cargo ship that has landed, and they've been on it. It's landed in Tyre, and they're in Tyre. They have to wait seven days for the cargo ship to unload its cargo. And that's where we're going to pick up Paul's story in verse 4 of chapter 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and were greeted greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. You know, verse 4 tells us that when they landed and spent seven days in Tyre, they made the most of those seven days by immediately seeking out believers who lived there. They didn't just stroll around the city and entertain themselves. They sought out believers, the spiritual community. And that spiritual community, even though this is their first meeting with Paul, they have a message for Paul, and their message, they speak to him loud and clear, and it's, don't go to Jerusalem. Apparently, the Holy Spirit has given them a heads up, has given them uh, a prophecy, so to speak, about what's going to happen with Paul in Jerusalem. Now, it's not a warning from the Holy Spirit, like we saw earlier in Acts, when the Holy Spirit said, don't go into Asia. This is simply letting all of them know 
Paul is in for hard times. It's like a, a family member of mine had surgery last week, and before they went into the surgery, the surgeon sat down with the family and said, this is exactly what's going to happen. And these are going to be the hard times, and these are going to be how we walk through it as your medical team. The Holy Spirit is giving Paul and the believers an opportunity to know what's ahead and that he is going to uh, walk through that future. Now, when he leaves Tyre, his friends and his fellow believers walk with him to the outskirts of the city. I thought that was so sweet. They all, it says even their wives and their children, they walk out there with him and they all kneel down and pray. And what was interesting about this is this was actually Paul's first contact with this church at Tyre. They had not met him before. They probably were aware of who he was. But this is his first contact with them. And you can see how quickly that bond of love grew in this spiritual community. Uh, they quickly embrace Paul. They follow him to the outskirts of the city. And they all kneel and pray together. Even though they have a warning for him. They love him. They want the best for him. And they send him on uh, his way with their prayers. Now, his next stop is south of Tyre. He's only there for one day. But even though he's there for one day, what do we see that he does? He immediately, even in that one day, seeks out other believers in the city and spends the day with them before he travels another 40 miles south to Caesarea where he goes to Philip's house. Now, Philip was one of the seven that we saw back in uh, Acts chapter 7 or maybe chapter 8, I believe, that was chosen to feed the widows along with Stephen. And he'd been with Philip's family for several days when Agabus the prophet comes down from Jerusalem. Now, we saw Agabus... Uh, before also, he was the prophet that predicted the famine that we talked about back in chapter 11. So Agamus comes, and when he gets there, he dramatically proclaims what they all already know. Paul's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. And he does it in the way of the Old Testament prophets because the Old Testament prophets were always dramatic and they acted out whatever the prophecy was. And that's what we see Agabus do here. He acts out how Paul is going to be bound in Jerusalem. Now, his dramatic presentation at this point isn't really a surprise to anyone but it does cause everyone, including Luke, who authors the book of Acts, even Luke stops and begs Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Paul's spiritual community cares about him. And they care about his future and his life. Now, Paul has a luxury, so to speak, here of knowing the what and the wear of the hardship that he faces. Agabus has just acted it out for him. He knows he's going to be bound at some point, hand and foot. You know, most of us sitting here today don't have a clue what hardship um, this afternoon might bring, or tomorrow, or next week, or next year. But I think if we were honest with each other, we would all say we are not going to pass through this life without a day, or a week, or a year of hardship to come before we go be with Jesus. You know, Jesus actually talks about that in John 16. Look at your verse sheet. We've talked about this verse before. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Jesus tells us that there's going to be a day in our life when this world filled with trouble that we have to pass through, we might encounter that. Now, we don't know whether it's from illness or from relationships or from jobs or maybe simply that the culture we live in is hard for all of us. But we can take a look at Paul's selfie right here and we can be prepared by surrounding ourselves with a spiritual community that loves us, that uh, cares enough about us to weep when we weep, that gathers around us when we walk through the storm and prays for us. And maybe a spiritual community that, that even has... Um, is brave enough to do what Agabus did and tell us the truth about how hard this might really be in our lives. A year ago, I texted some members of my spiritual community, my mom's group. We've met together for 23 years and prayed for our children. And I texted them on a Monday morning and I said, something's going on with my two-year-old grandson, Aaron. His mom has taken him to the hospital. And I simply asked him to pray. That was it. Quick text, Pray for Aaron. I don't know what's going on. You know, it wasn't, but just a few minutes later, there was a knock on my door, and one of them stood there and said, hey, I, I just got in my car and came. And she hadn't been there very long when I got a phone call that said Aaron's heart had stopped at Cook's Hospital. And what she did in that moment was take his baby brother out of my arms and said, go. And I did. I got in my car, and I got to Cook's, and I was so diswrought and upset. I wasn't sure where to go, but you know what? Two or three more of my spiritual community had beat me there. And they were there in the hospital when I got there. And they got me where I needed to go somehow, somewhere. They held me up with their prayers and their tears and their physical presence. I don't even want to consider how hard that first day might have been without my spiritual community. In fact, that's one of my biggest memories about that day. I'm happy to tell you that Aaron survived and is thriving, and I think it's because of the prayers of that spiritual community. You know, Paul in his wisdom sought out spiritual community wherever he went, and when hard times approached, who was it that stood around him? His spiritual community. His spiritual community that gave him the bond of fellowship that he was going to need to face what he knew without a doubt was on the road ahead. Now, no matter what your future holds this morning, good times or bad, if we as women follow Paul's example and we build and invest in having spiritual community with the women that are here around us today, this is all of our spiritual community right here in this room. We're going to be prepared for the future. You know, this isn't just about having someone to have lunch with when we come and we meet other women, although that's fun and valuable. What this is about is having a spiritual community that can shape how you face your future. Okay, let's keep reading about Paul, verses 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. For those of you who followed Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and to the cross as part of your preparation from Easter, these verses may seem a little bit familiar as we talk about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Jesus, just like Paul, was warned over and over again about going to Jerusalem. But just like Paul, 
Jesus chose to follow God's plans, even though he knew what lay ahead as he did. Look on your verse sheet at Matthew 20, 18. This is Jesus. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Look at Luke 9:51. I love this verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says this in Luke 22. And when he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him, and his choice was to follow God's plan regardless. And he sets his face for Jerusalem, and he commits to the will of God. Paul also knows what God's plan is for his life. And even though his friends beg him to make another plan, they beg him to make his own plan and to save his life, uh, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Now, neither Paul nor Jesus are masochists. Neither of them really are looking for a future that's filled with suffering and pain. But they both desire to put God first. They both desire to commit to following the will of God regardless what it looks like. We see that in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's what these verses here, 13 and 14, say about Paul. He is uh, saying to his friends, not my will, but God's will. Now, we could spend the rest of our time together talking about how we know what God's will is. That is a talk for another day, uh, and it's a great talk. But what we see here is that Jesus and Paul both know what God's will is for them in their life. They know it already. The Holy Spirit has been clear to both of them. So their choice is not, how do I figure out what God's will? Their choice is one we're all going to face. We're going to face too. And their choice is, once I know it, do I follow it? Once I know it, do I follow it? And they do. Because Jesus and Paul both trust in the perfect plans of God. Look at what Psalm 33 says about the plans of God. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. And the purposes of his heart through all generations. They trust the plans of the Lord because they know the plans of the Lord succeed. They know the plans of the Lord are perfect. Now, Paul's commitment to the will of God above all else is actually what I think is the perfect preparation for the future that uh, he has ahead of him because it frees him from worry. It frees him from worry even though he knows what lies ahead. He could be worrying about what lies ahead, but because he's committed to the will of God, he knows that when life gets hard, God is still in it. God is still in it. When you're walking the path that God has chosen for you, even when it gets hard, you know God has not left you. It frees him from uh, worry because he's followed God's plan, not his own. It also frees him from regret, which I love that too, because he knows that the suffering that he faces is not the result of his own foolish plan. 
he hasn't done what his friends uh, asked him to do, which was make his own plan and not go to Jerusalem. He doesn't have any regrets because he's going to Jerusalem because it is the will of God for him in Christ Jesus. And then finally, it frees him from asking why. You know, that's our first question when times are hard. Why? Why? Well, Paul doesn't have to ask why because he knows God already knows the why. You know, committing to the will of God once you know what it is and following it um, is really the sweet spot in life. It's the sweet spot in life. It may not be the easy spot in life, but it's the sweet spot because it does free us from worry and regret and from asking why. Look at Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 on your verse sheet. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the life of Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to a missionary named Jim Elliot for three years and they had a baby. They were in Ecuador and as missionaries and, and Jim and a, a team of two other missionaries went uh, deep into the jungle of Ecuador to take the gospel to a tribe that had never even heard that there was a God in the world. When Jim and his fellow missionaries made that first contact with contact with the tribe of Aka Indians out there in the jungle of Ecuador, they were slaughtered before they even had an opportunity to say the word Jesus. Months later... Elizabeth, and if you've read her story, you probably know this. Months later, Elizabeth knew that following the will of God uh, to take the gospel uh, to these Indians was what her husband was doing when he died. She felt like that call um, to follow the will of God was on her life too. So when her baby was only two years old, she took that baby and she went back to that same tribe of Aka Indians that had murdered her husband. She lived with them. I believe it was for about four years. She shared the gospel day in and out. She translated the scriptures for them. And she watched them one after the other come to know Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot found the sweet spot in life by committing to the will of God. Even in what I think is probably the most difficult circumstances I've um, heard in a long time. And she tells in her memoirs that it brought her freedom from worry. It brought her freedom from regret. And she never had to ask why. The same thing was true with Paul as he faced his future. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 17. When they had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands here are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children a walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. 
and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So we see here that Paul finally travels down the coast from Tyre and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does here is the same thing we've seen him do, which is seek out spiritual community. And he meets with James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And he tells them about the amazing work that God has been doing among the Gentiles. And they have the opportunity to share with him that thousands of Jews have also come to know Jesus under their ministry. There's a lot to celebrate together. But along with celebrating... The elders at the Jerusalem church also tell him that the new Jewish uh, Christians have some huge misgivings about his uh, ministry to the Gentiles. Um, in fact, there are rumors and claims that he is teaching them, the, new, the Jews among the Gentiles, that they don't have to circumcise their children and that they should abandon their Jewish customs. And of course, that's not true because Paul himself has not abandoned the Jewish customs and he's certainly not teaching that to the Jews that are among the Gentiles. So in order to lay those false reports to rest, the Jerusalem elders have a plan. They decide that if Paul joins in with these four men who've taken a vow, even pays for their vow in the temple, that that will show to the new Jewish converts that he has not abandoned his Jewish customs, that he is devout and strict and in observance of the law. Now, Paul is a sharp guy, and he recognizes the bind that the Jerusalem elders are in here. They want to support his ministry to the Gentiles, but they also have thousands of new Jewish Christians that they don't want to turn away from the faith uh, by thinking that by supporting the ministry to the Gentiles, it disrupts their uh, ancestral customs. So Paul humbly submits to their leadership and he purifies himself along with these men and he goes to the temple uh, as the elders ask. Unfortunately, you know from reading the story, don't you, that it doesn't turn out the way that the elders hope. There are unbelieving Jews from Asia who are in the temple and they see Paul and they stir up the crowds. They stir up the crowds. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. You know, these are similar um, rumors and lies that were spread about Stephen. And that resulted in Stephen being torn apart and stoned by the mob to death. These unbelieving Jews accused uh, Paul of bringing a Gentile in the temple into the sacred part of the temple. And they do that because they've seen Paul earlier with an Ephesian Gentile that has been traveling with him. There is no evidence that Paul took this Gentile into the sacred parts of the temple. In fact, in the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are allowed to be before it becomes the court of the women and then into the uh, more sacred places in the temple, there are stones along the way written in different languages that tell the Gentiles, if you go into these other courts, uh, 
you will be executed. So there was no reason for Paul, who knew well what would happen if a Gentile entered the courts, to do that. It was a capital offense to bring a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple because they did believe uh, that it defiled the temple. And I thought this was interesting. Even the Romans acquiesced to the Jews, and they gave the Jews the right to execute anyone who brought a Gentile or was a Gentile that went into the inner courts of the temple even if they were a Roman citizen, the Romans would let the Jews execute them. So that's what's going on here. And very quickly, this mob manages to infect the whole city. I don't know how that happens, but apparently the whole city heard what was going on at the temple. They become incensed and come to join this riot. Paul's rescue comes from that unlikely place of the Romans themselves. There is a uh, Roman... um, guard that is stationed right adjacent to the temple and they hear this mob and all the shouting and it is their job to keep order in the city so they run over uh, when they hear it and fortunately this mob when they see the Roman soldiers they stop beating Paul before it kills him and the commander automatically thinks that Paul must be a criminal for this mob to be reacting the way they're reacting so he arrests him assuming that he's arresting the criminal and then he tries to find out from the mob exactly what's going on but there is such an uproar that he can't discern anything so he his soldiers carry Paul back to the barracks uh, out of the temple into the barracks look at verse 37 with me we'll see what happens as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks he said to the tribune who is the commander of the Roman soldiers may I say something to you And the tribune said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Um, And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. From the moment we've seen Paul enter Jerusalem uh, to meet with the Jerusalem elders to his arrest here by the Roman elders, what we see on his selfie is a great quality. We see the quality of humility. Paul has every reason to be prideful. If anybody in the world could be prideful, it would be Paul. He was a distinguished and learned rabbi in the Jewish faith. He said that over and over again uh, in Acts. He was singled out by Jesus himself. The resurrected Jesus came to Paul personally on the road to Damascus and gave him the most amazing ministry go to the Gentiles, which of course takes the gospel to the entire world. So he was singled out by Jesus. And on top of that, he's a Roman Roman citizen by birth. A Roman citizen by birth. But in all these difficult circumstances that Paul finds himself, from the minute he arrives in Jerusalem, what we see of him, we don't see pride. What we see is that he submits with humility to the authority around him. He humbly submits to the Jerusalem elders, and look what happens. He almost gets himself torn apart by a mob in the temple. And now, um, even though the Roman commander has arrested him without reason, honestly, he didn't have any reason to arrest Paul, he's got him bound in chains, he's carried him back uh, on his way to prison. Even now, Paul speaks with humble submission to the Roman commander. 
What we don't see in Paul, we don't see that he's angry here. We don't see name calling. We don't see that he even plays the Roman citizenship card here. He just speaks calmly to the commander in this situation. I read an account a couple of years ago about um, that cute actress Reese Witherspoon. And she and her husband had been stopped late at night uh, on suspicion of a DUI. And unfortunately for her, um, the officer has her on his dash cam as he's giving her a field sobriety test. He has her saying repeatedly, do you know who I am? Did you look at my driver's license? Did you not recognize my name? We don't see that with Paul. He's not saying to the Roman commander, do you know who I am? Did you not look at my papers? Uh, he's not shouting to anyone that he encounters. He's calm, and he simply speaks to the Roman commander in Greek, which is what gets his attention. And he says, hey, I, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. That's a great city. That's a city known for uh, its educated people. Paul's future is going to hold a lot of these encounters. In fact, we're going to read uh, more of them in the next couple of weeks as he encounters other officials in his imprisonment. And an attitude of humility is going to serve him well. It's not only going to prepare him uh, for the years of imprisonment he's going to face. It does something else that's pretty remarkable. His attitude of humility presents Jesus to everyone he meets everywhere he goes. Look at what Paul himself writes about Jesus in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Lord Jesus, and Paul knows this, our Lord Jesus was the ultimate example of humility as the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. So not only was Paul's journey to Jerusalem similar to Jesus's in many ways, Paul's attitude as he journeyed to Jerusalem was like Jesus's as well. He humbly submits to those around him, even though it leads him straight to a murderous mob and to a prison cell. With an attitude of humility, Paul represents Jesus well, both to the church leaders and he represents him well to the Roman soldiers. It's another selfie we can see from Paul's life. And it can prepare us for our future as well. No matter what our futures hold, good times or bad, an attitude of humility is going to represent Jesus well wherever we go. Let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 40. Look down at verse 40 in your Bibles. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his... Uh, hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the Hebrew language you know we've seen Paul over and over again sees every opportunity that he has to uh, talk about Jesus and he does that one more time here as he shares his testimony with this murderous mob and he talks about the great work that God has done in his life he speaks in Aramaic which was the uh, language of the time and uh, and we're not going to read this whole passage, but let me summarize it for you. In verses 3 through 5, what he tells them is, I was a zealous prosecutor of Jews. I wanted to stamp, I mean of Christians. I wanted to stamp out 
Christianity and the movement called The Way. He was completely committed to the law of Moses and he was intent on stamping out Christianity. Now this is a devoutly Jewish crowd, obviously. It's the one that was in the temple that followed him over across the street to the barracks. Uh, So he starts out by emphasizing, hey, I was just like you. I was just like you, intent on um, stamping out Christianity. In verses 6 through 11, what he does is he tells his story of how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's an amazing story, and he tells it again. And then in verse 12, he introduces Ananias. That was part of his story. Now, back in chapter 9 that we looked at a few weeks ago, he simply called Ananias um, a disciple. But here, he describes him because this is his Jewish audience, and he wants to connect with them one more time. He emphasizes that Ananias was a devout and well-respected Jew. In verse 14, Paul uses the word righteous one to describe Jesus because he knows that this crowd understands when he talks about Jesus, he's talking about their Messiah. It also gives Paul, because he shares that he has spoken face-to-face with Jesus, it also establishes for Paul the right of apostleship because that was the mark of a true apostle. They had had face-to-face contact with Jesus. Now, this account adds something that Paul Luke didn't tell us back in chapter 9. And back in chapter 9, Luke told us that it was Ananias that shared with Paul that his ministry would be to the Gentiles. Here we see in verse 17 that God confirmed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles by a special revelation as he was praying in the temple. Look at verses 17 through 21 with me. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is new information about Paul's commissioning, and he shares it right here with this mob. Now, without a doubt, God has done a great work in Paul's life. Not only has Jesus transformed him from a zealous persecutor of Christians, but he's given him a future with a purpose, a future with an amazing mission of sharing Jesus with the Gentiles. And what Paul is describing to this crowd is that he's gone from a rage-filled hater to a man with a testimony of Jesus and a ministry to the world. The message of Jesus and his mission in the world is now the fire in Paul's belly. It's what gets Paul out of bed every day. It's what keeps him moving forward no matter what it is he's facing. And we can see that because Paul has just been attacked by this mob, hasn't he? He's probably injured. In fact, there were some uh, commentators that I read that, that felt like he was carried to the barracks because he was so injured he couldn't walk. So here Paul is being attacked by a murderous mob. And what does he do? He begs the commander to let him tell the story of Jesus. Let him tell what's happening in his life. 
Not even a murderous mob can stop Paul from telling the story of life change that came on that day on the road to Damascus. And it's that that has been one of the preparations that Paul has for his future. Because the opportunity to tell that story overshadows everything else in his life. It doesn't matter if they beat him, flog him, or lock him up. The fire in his belly is to tell the story of who Jesus is. You know, if we focus on telling the story of God's grace and mercy in our lives, it takes our eyes off our hard moments, doesn't it? And it places them on the eternal. It reminds us that this moment is not the only moment that we're going to have. We tell that story of God's grace and mercy in our lives and it takes our eyes off ourselves and it points every other eye towards Jesus. Telling about God's grace and mercy in our lives is oftentimes what gives us purpose when life is hard. Okay, let's finish up. Let's read verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's been, who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now when Paul says the word Gentiles here, this mob that has for a a few moments listening to him has been quiet and calm, all of a sudden, just like a, a fire that you pour gasoline on, bursts into an intense Rage, And what they're incensed about is that Paul is approaching Gentiles directly with the message of salvation without insisting that they first be introduced to Judaism and to the law of Moses and the ancient customs. In their mind, this is the ultimate apostasy. The ultimate apostasy if Gentiles are placed on the same footing before God as the nation of Israel. Now, the Roman commander probably doesn't understand Aramaic here. He probably doesn't know exactly what Paul has been saying to the crowd. And he's probably standing there waiting for him to finish when all of a sudden this incredible rage uh, flames up in this crowd. And he certainly isn't going to um, have a riot on his watch because he'll be punished for that. So he takes charge immediately and he says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and I am going to have you flogged until I find out what the story is. Now the flogging that he orders for Paul is actually a severe form of torture. Um, Many times prisoners did not survive the kind of flogging that was ordered for Paul And you know, Paul knows exactly what's fixing to happen here. He understands what they're stretching him out to do. But as you can see here in these last few verses, Paul's completely calm, isn't he? He's not um, 
he does not appear agitated at all. He simply asks a clear, calm, and very strategic question. He just says to the centurion standing there, Hey, is it lawful for you to torture uh, a Roman citizen who hasn't even been convicted? I think that's a great time for Paul to bring that up right here. He waited just a minute too long as far as I'm concerned. Um, But it does create the stir he uh, intends because the centurion immediately panics. And he runs off to find the commander who panics and comes back to find out if it is true. And once they discover it's the truth, the text tells us that they all immediately scattered. And the commander was afraid. The commander was afraid. You know, one of my favorite verses that Paul wrote is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And I think it describes what's going on with Paul here. Look at your verse sheet. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul's giving us a great example of that verse here. He is walking by faith. His circumstances are frightening. If he looked around at what was going on, the murderous mob, the guys are tying him down and getting out this torture whip to use on him, he should be totally freaked out. I get freaked out just reading it. But he is not. He's calm. We didn't see him freak out as he traveled on his missionary journeys and they over and over again arrested him and flogged him and put him in jail. We don't see him freaked out as he walks steadfastly with his face set toward Jerusalem. Paul's prepared for whatever his future holds because he's not looking around at his circumstances and reacting to them. He's simply looking at Jesus and he knows who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. So it doesn't matter to him whether he's flogged today or not flogged today because he's placing his faith and walking in the person of Jesus Christ. He's prepared for his future because he has decided, I'm going to be a man that walks by faith, not reacts to my circumstances. Now the Roman commander and all his soldiers on the other hand, Uh, What they're doing is walking in their circumstances, isn't it? They're thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world have we done? We have treated this Roman citizen terrible. We've arrested him and we've chained him. We've almost tortured him. So their circumstances dictate their response, doesn't it? And they are freaked out and they all run off. And I'm sure they're hoping, I hope nobody mentions this to the Roman governor And really, I think that's probably all they know to do. If their circumstances are good, life is good. If their circumstances are bad, then they're filled with fear and anguish. Paul knows there's a better way, a better way to be prepared for an uncertain future than just reacting to your circumstances. Um, And there's no better way to face the future than to walk in faith, trusting, trusting that God loves us, that he knows us, that he goes before us, that he strengthens us. You know, I don't think Paul was an abnormally courageous man who said, bring it on, torture me, I can deal with it. I do think Paul was an ordinary man who had faith in an extraordinary God. He had faith in an extraordinary God, and he knew it was that God that held his future. When our faith, not our circumstances, guides our response, then we can look at Paul's selfie and we can be the same kind of women that we see Paul here. We can be prepared for our futures no matter what they hold. I think Paul probably shares the foundation of that faith that he walks in in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, 38 on your verse. This is Paul. 
And Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When that's what we believe, faith will guide us. And we're going to face our future without fear, just like Paul. Pray with me. Father, you're a good and a gracious God. You're everything that Paul knew that you were. We see him live out his life as someone uh, that is prepared for his future. Father, I thank you for the word of truth and how it prepares us for our future. I'm asking uh, that your hand of favor would be on every woman that's here today. And that as we leave here, that your word of truth would go deep into our hearts and it would change our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. We thank you, Lord God, for um, not only our Lord Jesus and what he's done for us, but the gift of your word and the opportunity to gather and study that word. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.